Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor in Chief of Plow Quarterly. Today we'll be talking with the medievalist Eleanor Parker. Eleanor is at Clerk of Oxford on Twitter about Vikings, medieval belief in the end of the world, and a heroic bishop. And then we'll talk with illustrator Owen Cyclops, he's at Owen Broadcast on Twitter, about his personal story and his first venture into magazine publishing with his comic in our current issue on the American temper of apocalyptic. And now, welcome to Eleanor Parker. I should hasten to say that one of the best things that you could do on Twitter would be to follow Eleanor, um, because one of the things she does in line with this book, The Anglo-Saxon Year, is uh, she tweets some fantastic resources on all the different feast days that you knew of and possibly didn't know of um, throughout the year. And uh, you will learn immense amounts uh, about just the way that people in an earlier era thought about the church year in a way that I've found both sometimes just hilarious, but then other times like genuinely, you know, uh, spiritually deepening, right? It's uh, it's a really wonderful project. How did you get into that? Um, I think it was just, it's grown over time, really. It was just um, through my reading of medieval literature, I came to this appreciation of how important the structure of the church year was for medieval experience of time and life and how important festivals were to, to these communities um, and how that intersects with, you know, the seasons of the natural year, the cycles of time, um, so it's kind of become an increasing interest of mine just because it's so prevalent in medieval literature and so important to so many different writers. What have been some of the feast days that, you know, sort of became your favorite feast days through uh, this this project? Oh, there are quite a few, actually, depending on my mood and depending on the time of year. So I'm really fond of Candlemas. That's one of my favourites. Um, that's something people don't much celebrate anymore, but that's like the end of the Christmas season, um, commemorating Christ's presentation in the temple. And there's just this beautiful custom of taking candles to church and having them blessed and then taking them home and, and kind of keeping them all year. And the idea of a sort of festival of light around the beginning of February, when I think that is exactly when you need a festival of light, um, that's probably one of my favourites. In your article, which ties in, I guess, a little bit in the sense of, you know, looking at life from a different view, from a, a, a kind of foreign cultural view, you're writing about an Archbishop of York who's speaking to a very troubled congregation in the year um, AD uh, 1014. Who is this uh, Archbishop Wolfston? We kind of first know about him when he comes to prominence as Bishop of London um, in 996, so right at the end of the 10th century. Um, and then after being Bishop of London for a few years, he became Archbishop of York and Worcester, um, which made him kind of the, the second most important um, ecclesiastic in the land. Um, so he had a, a kind of a prominent role in public life and in political affairs, um, as well as obviously as in church um, affairs as well. One reason that we kind of were so eager for you to write this piece, we wanted a piece that would look, get back inside the heads of people who thought the world might be ending a long time ago, um, sympathetically, not in the sense of, oh, those foolish people uh, thought the world was ending and it didn't, uh, but rather, uh, what, what were they really thinking? And uh, you get the sense that People in England around the year 1014 had ample reason to think the world was ending. Uh, what, what was going on? This was a time in which the circumstances of 
of England in this time were kind of so dire that it really did seem that things couldn't get any worse. And this particular text that I chose to talk about, um, he kind of gives us this picture of a country in a kind of political collapse and moral collapse and societal collapse as if everything is just kind of falling apart, mostly under the pressure of repeated Viking raids. Um, the Vikings have been raiding in England for kind of decades, um, pretty continuously. And what Wollstone talks about in this sermon is is kind of the pressure that that has put on English society and on all the different kinds of social bonds that people need to, you know, to have a, a flourishing, healthy, peaceful state. Um, all of that stuff is just kind of being being put under a, a kind of unbearable pressure. Um, and he thinks about that very much in apocalyptic terms, that, you know, the world must be getting close to its end now because things are just so bad that, you know, look around you is kind of what he's saying. This is um, you know, recognising the signs of the time, seeing just how bad things really are, um, is just about reckoning with reality, about acknowledging and, and admitting just how bad things are, and then asking, well, what should we do about it? He actually says kind of almost nothing about the Vikings, even though that's the ostensible threat. What he's really concerned about is what that threat is doing to English society kind of from the inside. Um, and he talks about this sense that just people have kind of given up on their obligations to each other, whether that's their duty to family members to, um, you know, members of their community, duty to the king, duty to the church, all the kinds of different obligations that he thinks people ought to admit and acknowledge and kind of live up to, they're turning away from, partly out of fear, partly out of sin and greed and, um, and pride and lust and all kinds of other sins which are sort of running rampant as these social bonds which are meant to contain them are sort of breaking down. It's not a warmongering sermon at all. It's not a, a sermon about like, oh, this is, you know, the Vikings are the Antichrist and they're going to bring the end of the world. It's kind of look what this is doing to us. And the sermon uh, you're talking about, that's the the Sermon Lupi, the Sermon of the Wolf to the English. Uh, could you just talk about this as a, a document? Yeah, so Wolfstan, so at this point in his career, he was Archbishop of York and Worcester, and that's kind of makes him the second most important churchman in England. Um, and Anglo-Saxon Anglo -Saxon archbishops and bishops were very politically engaged, so they were all engaged in kind of, you know, ad advice to the king, in the writing of laws. We know that he was a close advisor to King Ethelred, um, and he was sort of trying to get his ideas um, across to the king and his other councillors. One possibility is that it was preached directly to the most powerful people in the kingdom, so the king's advisers, the Witan, um, and that it was kind of meant to to change their hearts and minds and that they were meant to the kind of implement um, what it's saying. Do you have a kind of favourite passage from it you'd, you'd be able to read? Um, yeah, I could just read from the beginning of it, I guess. Um, so he starts off by saying, Beloved ones, know what is true. This world is in haste and it is nearing the end. And in this world, the longer things go on, the worse they are, and so it has to be that things grow very much worse because of people's sins before the coming of Antichrist, and then indeed it will be grim and terrible throughout the world. Understand also seriously that the devil has now led this nation astray for many years, and there's been little loyalty among men, although they spoke well, and too many injustices have reigned in the land. And there were never many people who considered the remedy as eagerly as one should, but daily one evil has been piled upon another and injustices and many violations of law committed all too wide, widely throughout this entire nation. And if we are to have any, any remedy, we must earn it better from God than we have previously done. So he's really emphasising that idea that we've kind of earned, we've deserved that this terrible stuff should be happening to us. Well, and if you imagine him speaking to 
you know, the, the leaders of the kingdom, uh, including presumably King Ethelred, um, that's some powerful words. It's, it's really direct, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did the sermon work? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know how you would measure that exactly. But at the time of the period uh, the, the sermon was preached in, in 1014, that was kind of right at the end of the reign of King Ethelred. Um, the Vikings, as I said, had been attacking for a really long time. And um, just around this time, and especially in 1016, England did fall to Danish rule. So in one sense, that was a kind of loss. Um, but what Wollstan kind of went on to do at that point was to become an advisor to the new Danish king and to try and kind of implement the ideas that he's talking about in this sermon about restoring the bonds of community and kind of agreeing on common values and things like that. And to, to try to use those to shape the newly conquered country. Um, and from that point of view, it did kind of work um, that the Viking king Canute was quite successful and, uh, and he and Wollstan seemed to have worked quite well together. You describe in your article some of those laws, right? This took um, quite practical form. So at that point, it's very much about trying to produce um, a kind of a set of common values around which the Danes and the English could unite um, because you're in a situation of a country kind of just exhausted by decades of warfare and riven by internal division. And what Wollstan and Canute are trying to do in their first law code is to kind of agree on these are the things that we value, these are the things that we're going to protect, um, and that's partly um, sort of social bonds like protection of vulnerable widows or whatever it might be, and making sure that crimes are punished, making sure that the church is getting its proper dues, um, that taxes are paid at the proper time. So it is very practical. Um, but it's also things like we all agree that we're going to be loyal to the king and we all agree that our loyalty to God is going to be our kind of ultimate goal. Um, and of course, if you think that a lot of the Vikings were probably newly converted Christians or hadn't been Christians very long, even just getting them to agree to a, an explicitly Christian form of law was quite an achievement and, and an important sort of source of unity. Had Canute himself been converted by that point? Yeah, we don't know Christian? exactly. He might have been a Christian from childhood, um, but he would certainly lived an incredibly violent life um, up to the point where he became king of England, that he was only about sort of 18 or something at the time he became king. So he was quite young. He'd only really ever experienced warfare. He had no experience of kind of ruling or being a king or the responsibilities of kingship. So a lot of that he had to learn. Um, and probably Wolfstan was one of the most significant people in kind of shaping him into a king. Um, and he did become um, a, a sort of a much admired uh, king and someone who was for centuries afterwards kind of renowned for the justice of his laws, um, the laws which Wollstan had sort of helped him to write. One of the backgrounds for us doing a kind of special issue on Apocalypse is that many people, f you know, again, as people have repeatedly throughout history, <laughs> feel that you know, things are ending in a certain way. You have climate change, you have widespread um, reluctance uh, that you can see in surveys uh, for people to have kids. You have the war in Ukraine right now, which um, kind of re-ups a whole bunch of issues that people had thought put to bed uh, from the Cold War, including, you know, the, pros the real prospect of nuclear war. Uh, and on a more conservative front, you have people seeing the kind of demise of a, a, a Christian-inflected society reflected both in law and in family life. So a lot of, a lot of big questions. What were kind of the takeaways for you and, and uh, from this episode uh, with, with Wolfstan, the Archbishop of York, um, but perhaps also some of the other 
medieval episodes where people kind of thought the end of the world might be coming um, for now, because I think a lot of your work has had to do with helping people see um, the medieval era not as, you know, these strange people with unenlightened views, um, but maybe getting into the, their heads a bit and, and perhaps even learning something from them. And the thing that I really admire about Wollstone's sermon is that he, it's not kind of hopeless, it's not despairing, it's not um, saying, well, the world is, is ending and, you know, we've all sinned and we've all learned this, that's it, we deserve it, let's just all, you know, the world go up in flames and, um, and that's how it ought to be. He's kind of still thinking about things that you can do, even if you feel like the apocalypse is only a couple of decades away. Um, it's like there are still things that matter and still things that are worth doing even though they don't stave off the apocalypse, they aren't going to kind of keep the darkness away, but they are sort of still valuable and worthwhile and still important um, because they're right in themselves as he sees it, these, you know, the, um, observing these duties to God and to other people. It's the right thing to do. And also it can kind of do some good in the meantime, because if you want to reconstruct a society, even in with the sense that maybe it's not going to last very long, maybe the apocalypse is still not very far away, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what you do in the meantime. Ultimately, the, the the motivation for, or a way of looking at the motivation for doing good, even if the world's about to end, is the good you do won't be lost and there is another world that will be, you know, the end of the world is not the end in, Christ, in the Christian view. And it's just interesting to sort of realize the way that that kind of, you know, firm belief in there being a new heavens and the new earth actually in a way allow you to live well in this earth because even if it's true that the apocalypse is about to happen you can still act as though you're building for the long term because you know that what you build won't be lost and that maybe in fact you work harder for the present world because you feel like you, you don't give in to despair and hopelessness and you don't just say well nothing matters you know they, they still feel like the, the the world matters very much because the things that you do here might affect eternity might echo in eternity yeah. so was Wolfstein calling um, those people back to values that they they had left behind, um, or was he saying no? These are this is Christian. This is Christianity. That this is a new thing that you need to commit yourself yourselves to now. Yeah. So it's interesting because particularly at this period, you've got um, you know this period in Anglo-Saxon history, you've got a kind of mixed population. On the one hand, um, Anglo-Saxon England have been Christian for um, for many centuries, um, and particularly for Wollstone, from Wollstone's point of view, the 10th century had been a kind of high point of English Christianity. So there was a period in the second or around the middle of the 10th century um, when uh, the king and the church were working in quite close harmony together. This is a period that's often called the Benedictine Reform. It was a kind of a time of, of revival in monastic life um, in that, um, in England. And Wolfstan and his contemporaries in the, the then beginning of the 11th century kind of look back a couple of decades ago and they say things were better then. And then the Vikings came and made everything worse. And can we get back to that? Um, okay. So that's part of it. But then at the same time, you've got a population um, of kind of more recent um, like Viking immigrants or Scandinavian immigrants who are much more recently Christianized, for whom Christianity and all the ways of living a Christian life are newer and need to be introduced kind of from first principles. Um, and one of the things that you can see Wollstone doing, not so much in this sermon, but in some of his other sermons, is kind of trying to, to negotiate that mixed you know, like, what can you ask of the Danes living in England? Um, should they maybe just be allowed to make their own laws or should they be asked to be subject to the same laws um, as the, the English Christian population of whom you can kind of hold them to a higher standard? Um, 
So it's quite a difficult situation in some ways. What conclusions did he come to with that? Did, did he sort of aim at a unified law? And on what basis? Did he hope to thoroughly Christianize the Danes? And, or was it a kind of a natural law, um, lowest common denominator, but good thing? Yeah, I think what he hoped by the, the time of the reign of Canute was to have the Danes kind of, um, at least theoretically, admitting to one law, that you have to have one, you know, one kingdom needs one law, but that also there might be aspects on which they can kind of be allowed to have their own law um, that maybe sort of smaller local disputes or things like that could be settled in a local way. Because obviously, if you're thinking about law in you know a, a society like Anglo-Saxon England, a lot of it's being decided at the very local level anyway. So how much sort of oversight the king and his advisors have over it is a sort of, you know... Um, so there's a there's a room there's some room for flexibility in allowing the Danes to to follow their own customs. Um, but the more serious the the subject, the more you want them to be conforming to Christian law. Um, and certainly, he's quite you know whatever kind of law they practice, as he sees it, ought to be Christian. It shouldn't be a, a heathen kind of law. He outlaw you know tries to outlaw heathen practices, and um, and outlawing that is part of what he thinks the law should be able to do, um, stopping people sacrificing to pagan gods and things like that. Can you talk about this, the concept, um, I guess it's troth or truth, getrotha. Can you talk about that as a kind of basis for public life or for personal conduct? Yeah, it kind of links together things that we don't necessarily connect, I think, because it's about you know truth in the broadest sense. So it's it's personal integrity and an individual's obligations to the people to whom they owe loyalty. So whether that's your parents or your spouse or your children or, you know, wider members of your kin group, it's that sense of your integrity and your, you know, but also um, loyalty within a society between different social groups. So that might be between a lord and his followers um, or between the king and his people. Um, and then, of course, also the truth that everybody, all Christians, owe to God, um, who is the ultimate source of truth. So it's like all of those things are kind of connected with each other. Um, and all of it is is kind of part of truth. And a, a break in one aspect of that web is kind of a threat to all of the, the peace and security of every, every other obligation, I suppose. It's interesting to sort of see that uh, there's a kind of hangover of that meaning in the idea of like pledging your troth. And so things like, you know, absorb, observing marriage vows are as much a part of yeah. it as observing your kind of legal duties, because it's about being a kind of a, a fully truth-filled individual in every aspect of your life. It's a Christian culture and a kind of pagan culture attempting to live side by side and be a polity together in some way. And it's very hard not to see that as, you know, something like what what's going on now. How do you, in your work, how do you how do you like make use of those ideas? Like, do those ideas come up for you? And how do you kind of like negotiate not being too charmed by them while still maybe allowing yourself to think about them? Yeah, I don't know. I guess the question is, if we think about what is going on in, you know, British and American society in terms of a culture war, like what is it people are actually at war over? Um, and I think one of the things that Wolfstone really emphasizes is the importance of having things that you can agree on in a society, even if you don't agree on everything, you know, they have to be sort of shared values. And I feel like one of the challenges of what's become culture war kind of discourse is the fact that people don't agree on anything, <laughs> you know, they can't find common ground anywhere. And that there's a sort of almost like a, a desire to avoid finding common ground, like a resistance to finding any place where, okay, we can agree on this much, even if we don't agree on anything, on everything. Um, 
so I think that that emphasis on sort of trying to find unity um, in, for instance, trying to bring the English and the Danes together and trying to agree on the, at least we'll have one king or we'll have one law or something. We'll have one thing in common, um, even if we don't conform our lives to each other in every other aspect. Um, it's kind of the opposite of a culture war, I suppose. Yeah. The Anglo-Saxon kingdom in which Wolfstan was working as bishop was in its last decades at the time he made his sermon, right? Um, of course, he died uh, before 1066, but how does that kind of make us look back at this period differently? Um, how much of his England survived into the, you know, what became English history later? Yeah, it is. It casts an interesting kind of shadow back over his his time, I suppose, that we know, you know, the Anglo-Saxon state wasn't going to last much longer. But actually quite a lot of, particularly the, the sort of legal culture that Wolfstan and his contemporaries and the people that he worked with kind of created, did actually survive the Norman conquest. It was one of the things that survived because the Norman kings were aware that Canute had been a previous conqueror of England and not that long ago, you know, it was only kind of just out of living memory. And so they actually did follow that precedent of trying to make law a sort of unifying force. Um, and they kind of ostentatiously <laughs> followed the law of Canute and sort of said, we're going to follow Canute's laws, which was Wollstone's law. And so aspects of that law kind of continued after the conquest. So of all the many things about Anglo-Saxon England that died and, um, as a result of the Norman Conquest, actually Wolfstan's legacy and his preaching and his laws kind of didn't, they did survive, um, which is sort of nice. It wasn't the end of, of his world in that, in that sense. That's amazing. Can you talk about what the kind of character of that law was? Like in what way would it have been different from um, the law that prevailed among the, you know, the Vikings in their, in their homeland or that they would have preferred? I suppose the difference to a Viking law was that it was, you know, um, absolutely Christian. So that, you know, um, the observation of things that we would consider to be more like kind of private, I guess, or, or sort of church oriented Christian practices were part of national law. So things like the observance of feast days, um, paying tithes to the church on particular days, um, observance of fasting, um, you know, what support for the for the church and priests and, and monasteries and so on like that is, is kind of written into the law itself. Um, so something, I mean, we started off um, talking about um, the importance of feast days and the very fact that you can kind of lay down, like Wollstone does in this law, like this is the day on which everyone will be fasting. We're all going to keep 18th of March as the Feast of St. Edward or something. Obviously, Viking law didn't, <laughs> didn't observe Christian feasts. So that aspect of, of kind of trying to associate that with, the, you know, the other aspects of law, like you know, punishment for theft or, or whatever it might be, um, suggests that all of those kinds of things are integrated. Um, and for Wolfstan, that, that's really important. I think that sense that like church law is kind of not optional. It's not a private matter. It's something that's a matter for all of society. Is there, I mean, obviously our kind of like stereotype of what the, this kind of thing would have been about was bringing of some something like what we might think of as Christian gentleness into Viking culture. Is there any truth to that in, in, from a legal perspective? Yeah, in one sense, in that a lot of it is, is kind of about trying to prevent people taking the law into their own hands, I suppose. So trying to prevent, say, the feuds that are quite common in, um, in pre-Christian Viking culture, um, where essentially punishment for a crime is up to the family of the victim and, and they are entitled to, um, to kind of, you know, take the punishment as they want. So, part of these sorts of law codes is about 
almost like taking that personal element out of it, saying it's, you know, if, if a wrong is done to a member of your family, it's, you're not failing in your duty to your family if you uh, agree to, you know, say, like, for money to be paid rather than for, for violent revenge to be taken. So um, that's part of it. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of trying to, to give a, a more Christian structure to things like settling disputes and, and wrongs um, rather than just allowing people to, to kind of do it as, <laughs> as seemed best to them. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks thanks very much. Nice to talk to you both. So welcome to Owen Cyclops, which is not his real name. Um, he is a Christian illustrator um, living in the woods with his dog and his wife and his baby. Um, you may know him from Twitter, which is definitely where I first ran into him um, and where is probably the best place to kind of hunt him down. Um, he's also got a new book out called Channel One, which I actually got for my then fiance, now husband, for Christmas, and which I cannot recommend enough. One of the reasons that you're on here is that you have a piece in our new um, Apocalypse issue, which I kind of felt like I'd been wanting to get you to do um, some kind of cartoon for us for a while, and just the Apocalypse issue seemed like really kind of a perfect uh, intro to Owen for our readers and perfect topic for you. And it was also, you know, you also focused kind of pretty strongly on the American aspect of it, which is one of your recent kind of more intense interests, like the history of American Christianity and how America kind of puts its own spin or own energy behind um, the more universal Christian uh, Christian teachings. Um, do you want to talk about that? Like, what? How, how did you get to that question? So I became Christian, like I said, a while ago now. And when I first entered that world, I thought, okay, which group do I sign up with? I guess I have to sign up with a group or something. Maybe I don't. And it's kind of funny if you imagine someone like me having grown up not Christian and also in a place and environment where that would be a very weird path for my life to take. I had all these questions that were now suddenly very important, but who do I ask? Because everyone has their own view, you know, is the Pope the person I'm supposed to be listening to? Or do I join this like Lutheran church down the street? Like, what is that about actually? So because of that, it necessitated me basically going through all of Christian history and building up my understanding of that whole story as a whole. I realized I had the biggest gap in America, the 1800s, basically from the Reformation and Pilgrims leaving to Pentecostals and 1900 American Christianity. And I thought, well, that's weird. I'm American. Uh, I'm, I've always been really interested in this little world, um, you know, different groups popping up, to put it lightly. And yeah, information-wise, that's been my main focus for about a year or two now. Have you come to any tentative conclusions? Are you still in sort of seeker mode for research mode for that? I wouldn't say I've drawn any conclusions, but I have learned a lot. It's definitely illuminated a lot for me about America. The American character is sort of unique. I guess every country has its own unique character, um, how the history's played out, and then my own spiritual inclinations. Yeah. Describe your, I don't know, like your conversion or like how you got to the Christian thing and from where. I was raised not religious. My parents never talked about God or anything like that. I kind of had the normal conception of religion just being superstition. And when I went to college, I got like really depressed. And for some reason I had this instinct of, you know, there are all these old books around. Um, people must be keeping them around for some reason. I'm gonna find the oldest book I can and read it and just see what it says. 
And I think I actually took my computer out and just Googled what is the oldest book. And it came up as the Tao Te Ching, which is a book of Chinese philosophy. And I read it and I thought, wow, I thought religion was like extra stupid, but actually it's, it's this whole other way of peering into this aspect of life that I never realized. And I realized that I had been misled about what religion is in general. And then after that, I pretty much only read religious texts, probably for the rest of my life. Long story short, um, I got really into Buddhism and doing psychedelics. I was pretty much the platonic ideal of the nerdy white guy doing acid and mushrooms as part of his spiritual life and having a relationship to Eastern religion. Like if that's an archetype, that was me a thousand percent. I started drifting away from Buddhism for a variety of reasons. Um, mostly it wasn't really anything about it being incorrect. I started asking questions that in my opinion, Buddhism isn't focused around. Uh, those two things mostly being where did the universe come from? That's part of you know who made the universe, that kind of thing. And why does evil exist? Sort of the classic theological questions. Um, actually, in Buddhism, there's a list of things called the four imponderables. It's four things that Buddha said, basically, don't think about this. It's not going to help you get enlightened. And where the universe came from is one of them. So I started getting obsessed with these questions and my boat started drifting further and further away from that island. And then eventually, you know, I couldn't see the island anymore. So I was like, okay, now, now I'm out here by myself. Uh, I thought, you know, I really need some outside force to like help me and guide my life. I thought that I could drive this car myself, but I really can't. I was actually sitting on my bed and I kind of laid out everything I thought. And I was like, wow, that's like really close to Christianity. What I'm describing, even like, you know, God having some way of like interacting with the world because he cares about humans. And it really kind of weirded me out. And that was like the seed planted that eventually grew into me identifying with it and saying, yeah, this is actually my spiritual path. And I think this is real. That's the shortest possible version of that tale. That's fascinating. How did you, um, you'd sort of also, there was, there was kind of like a lifestyle aspect to this. Like you would, it sounds like the wife and dog and baby and woods adjacent town thing kind of happened pretty fast. Um, after you, there was like a certain amount of massive life readjustment that happened alongside this. Is that, is that right? Or. So yeah, it was basically everything at once. I mean, I was a very like, frankly, drug oriented person, uh, drinking, smoking weed, doing psychedelics and all that. I really bottomed out with that. Um, I fell out of the world socially where I was living, which was, this is relevant in New York City. So I had fallen out of that culture is how I would describe it. I, I suddenly realized I was kind of the black sheep all of a sudden for a variety of reasons that you could imagine that go along with all this. And yeah, I basically, we basically both hit the same wall at the same time and we packed up everything in a van and moved out here. I'd be fascinated to talk, Owen, a little about uh, the comic you did for us about America, uh, titled American Apocalypse. And it, it's short, right? It's two pages, but it's so open-ended and evocative and leaves you with a sense, you know, I remember getting to the end of it and going outside and looking at the sky and saying, hey, any day now. Um, <laughs> But you do, you mention um, how apocalyptic ideas, what a big role they've played, you know, in U.S. history. Um, the long range of very screwy, sometimes disturbing, sometimes downright evil groups that have played with apocalyptic themes. And yet, what's great about the comic is uh, 
the idea of something from the outside coming to change everything isn't written off, right? Um, and that there is something to it, right? So uh, would you be able to talk a little bit about that, sort of the American tradition of apocalypse and the good sides, the bad sides? I, I got this quote from someone, I think it was William James, and he said, you can learn something about the, the normal, let's say, just speaking casually, sort of like the norm, the what's in the middle of the bell curve in religion by going to the fringes and seeing the fringes and the tendencies on the fringes. And that's been part of my study of American religion, going to the, frankly, like way more atypical or weirder groups and noticing organically, I didn't go in with this presupposition, that it kind of does reflect something back onto the whole um, in good or you know bad ways. Uh, it could be pathological, it could be really positive. Um, usually it's a mix of those things together, probably for every group, myself included. It's almost like if you took some of the ideas that were present in the Reformation and just slammed it to like 200 miles an hour, it kind of makes sense that America got to certain places. You have a group together and you're like, well, you know, we can communicate with God directly. You know, we don't need the church. We don't need these priests. We don't need all this stuff. And then eventually you get some guy in the room who's like, well, why do we even need the Bible? We can just talk to God directly. We don't even need scripture or anything. And then everyone else is like, whoa, 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 pump, pump the brakes, buddy. But that kind of taking a premise and it accelerating maybe a little bit too far for some people, let's say, uh, is part of what I find really interesting about it. Now we have this new continent open and people are free, kind of in my opinion, for the almost for the first time, really in a way, to do what they want and think what they want, again, whether that's good or bad. So anyway, that all kind of comes together with the apocalypse because it's this imminent sense of urgency, where are we going, what are we doing? And I think for whatever reason, American spirituality often does look down the road towards this, okay, but if Jesus is coming back, shouldn't we be ready for it? You know, it's really going to happen. I also just think that, because I realized that's kind of where I started <laughs> answering that question, is that, yeah, it also relates to the American psyche for me in a way. I touched on it in the comic for a second, but there also is something about the American spirit that whether it's real or not, feels like it just broke free of these chains. And I think that contributes to the kind of like wild energy that's present in it, kind of a paranoia, like maybe the chains are gonna come back. And then that paranoia bleeds out into uh, revelation, prophecy. There's a whole history of people, you know, having visions to a pretty crazy extent. I mean, like almost normalized, like, hey, did you go to church on Sunday? Did you have a vision or something? Like, yeah, I did, let me tell you about it. How do you think about the the contrast or like the question of, is there the sort of the universal nature of the Christian message? Like obviously Jesus is for everyone. The gospel is the same everywhere, um, but it's inflected. It sounds to how do you sort of understand Christianity in the context of thinking about it um, in these more culturally specific terms? Yeah, it's only something that vexes me literally every moment of my life. Literally, literally no exaggeration. It's so interesting because you, you pick up the Bible and you say, okay, well, I'm just going to read this. I mean, I'll just see what it says. But for me, then suddenly you're, you're a thousand miles down the road in like weird academic philosophy world because that inherently entails the historical lens that you're interpreting it through. Also, you know, what do these words even mean? And also when this person wrote them, what did they mean by them? Do I need to become a scholar of like the time and place this was written to understand this? Well, no, that can't be the case. And then what if I do that? And then that scholarship conflicts with 
what everyone else thinks the message is. And surely God didn't want everyone to get a PhD in every time and place that the Bible was written in to understand this very simple message, right? Someone might say, well, you know, you, you actually can't even pick this up and interpret it yourself because that's not how it's supposed to be. You know, Jesus didn't write the Bible. He left you a church. You're supposed to go to the church and the church can tell you what it means. How did you, so you did, you are baptized at this point, yeah? Actually, very unpopular with the listeners, probably. I'm actually not baptized. Owen! Yeah, I know. Well, it's interesting because the thing is that... Dude, honestly, some this is so, so people, some people don't know me here, obviously, maybe most people. So this has actually been kind of like a very big obsession of mine because, yeah, like I've thought about going down the street to some like Baptist church or whatever and just doing it one weekend, but... I kind of feel bad because I'm not like a part of that church. So everything I'm talking about isn't like theoretical. That's also part of why it's interesting. Like sometimes when I talk about this with people, it's on a very like theoretical plane, but I'm like, no, I actually like need to figure out where I'm like taking my baby like to church like this weekend, like right now. So it's been interesting because no, I I haven't gotten baptized. My wife and I have talked about it, but I'm kind of floating in this place where I've been wondering, you know, do I have to just pull the trigger and if there's a group where I don't agree with them like 100% about literally everything, like does that really matter? I guess not because obviously we're here to worship God. Like isn't that kind of weird and obsessive to try and find the perfect group that thinks everything I do about everything and, you know, who am I? I'm just some guy. But then the flip side of the coin is, so do I just arbitrarily like drive to the church closest to me? I guess. And then, so it's been a very interesting part of my spiritual journey and the baby has accelerated it into the realm of like now this is like an imminent question of where I'm taking my family to get spiritual direction and things like that you know and I can kind of cut it both ways some days I wake up and I'm like you know this is really stupid I should just go join a church like this is literally insane and then other days I'm like but you know if I really don't agree with them about x y and z then aren't I kind of just you know planting the seed of doubt for later like I was going over some really, really early Christian stuff, like with, you know, Aryan controversies, like way in the first centuries and everything. And I found some letter or something where, I didn't know we were talking about this, so I didn't pull it up, but I think it was, it was some bishop like in Egypt writing to some other bishop who was like really pumping like, you know, the cracking down on Aryanism stuff. And it was interesting because the guy was presenting it as the bishop was saying, look, like you, you don't need to be like doing this and like, making sure that everyone thinks like doctrinally the right X, Y, and Z way. Like that's not how it's supposed to be. And like, you should just drop this whole thing. And it was so interesting. Cause like, yeah, he's just some random guy, but like, it's interesting. Cause it's like, it raises the question of like, well, you know, does everyone agree with like literally every single thing for every church they go to? And like, what does that mean? And who has the authority to tell you what to believe? And then that ropes back into the whole American thing of like, no one's going to tell me what to do. Um, so it's, it's, it's a crazy interesting topic. It's, it's really fascinating on like every level all the way from the bottom all the way up to the top. I just hope you keep posting about how you're thinking about this because I just enjoy the way that your mind works. And also, it's going to be annoying for you to post about what you think about this because all of your followers are going to be trying to recruit you for their... <laughs> and so, I don't know, just keep doing it anyway. Um, at some point, I don't know where exactly you are, but like, I think you would get a kick out of visiting one of the Bruderhofs, which is, so the Bruderhof is the, um, group that publishes Plow, which I am very much not a member of, although I'm very much a fan and kind of adjacent to 
Um, so it's an Anabaptist group and they do the whole holding all things in common thing. So they're like full acts two and four living like the early Christians. That's funny because when you first contacted me about Plow, I was like, I thought this was an Anabaptist magazine, but I was looking at the site and I was like, is it? I was like, I can't tell. And then I was like, all right, whatever. <laughs> oh, okay. So obviously we got to go more Anabaptist here. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I am a member of, of that community, um, the Bruderhof, and we do try to share all things in common, you know, toothbrushes excluded. Um, and, uh, and, and yet, the one reason the plow is not just all Anabaptists all the time is we're aware that we're part of a, a greater body of Christ, and we feel it's important, um, maybe more important because of this whole... Sh church shopping phenomenon you mentioned, this consumerist approach to Christianity, which so much goes against what the Holy Spirit was starting to, starting at, at the first Pentecost. Um, it's maybe more important than ever to find common ground and emphasize points of unity um, than ever. And um, th that's what we need to do. We need to encourage each other that there's real flesh and blood reality to living out our Christianity. There's places you can see it, and it's not that the doctrinal differences don't matter. They, they do, but from an Anabaptist point of view, they matter a lot less than how we're living our lives as brothers and sisters, trying to follow Jesus, trying to do what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's really where, where Plow comes from, which is why... Uh, you know, Susanna and I can have our, our Anabaptist Anglican fights from time to time on this podcast. Yeah, well, it's so interesting, the community thing. For 90 plus percent of my life, I mean, like my religion was just something I did in my room alone with some books, like literally like no exaggeration. So the idea of other people being involved in my spiritual life and having a community is really interesting and strange. I've come around I've come around to seeing why it's essential obviously um, over time. but for me spirituality and like being alone were like tethered together intimately for essentially all of my spiritual life. If someone asked me you know what's your spiritual life I'd say, well there's my bedroom and I read stuff in there alone. <laughs> That's basically it. Right and Christianity kind of explodes that doesn't it because you have this communion of saints, and then you have to start dealing with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Owen. This has been a, a really great conversation. And if you're ever up in New York State um, and want to, you know, come and see some Anabaptists, you'd be very welcome up yeah, here. Yeah, I should do that, man. On my end, if anyone's interested in checking out my stuff, what I do, uh, Twitter is the main hub. It's at Owen Broadcast. Uh, I'm on other platforms also, like Instagram, Tumblr. I'm on pretty. I'm on pretty much every platform. Just getting my stuff out there. It's all at Owen Broadcast. Um, I have my website owencyclops.com, and yeah, I just released a book in December. It's called Channel One. It's on Amazon. If you came this far, I would suspect that you would find it enjoyable in some way. Um, but yeah, man, thanks for having me on. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And for a lot more content like this, check out Plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and to the occasional gift. 
Our members are one aspect of the broader plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. Join us next week as we talk with the author and demographer Lyman Stone about demography, hope, babies, and the end of the world. We'll be discussing his piece, The New Malthusians. See you then. 